and welcome to episode 39 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most enthusiastic host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Rides. Welcome to season four of Bookum Dano and Hawaii Five-O. As such, I'll be covering the first two episodes of the new season. Episode one, Highest Castle, Deepest Grave, and episode two, No Bottles, No Cans, No People. Since it's a new season, I think it's a great time to go over some periodic reminders. There will be background noise. I live in a loud house in a loud neighborhood, and I have given up the fight. So yes, yeah, sometimes you will probably hear people talking, people watching things at an incredible volume. You might hear the chickens across the street, and you might hear the highway that's like half a block away. I also live within a few blocks of the hospital, the police department, and the fire station, so you may even catch a snippet of siren. As always, I endeavor to pronounce everyone's name correctly, and I fail often. I study multiple languages, and English is my first language, but even so, I am fluent in none of them, so I fail on pronunciation a lot. I also try to include trigger warnings, not only in the audio, but also in the episode descriptions of any kind of material that might be sensitive for some people. I'm obviously not going to get them all, but I'm going to try to hit at least the big ones or the ones that I'm pretty sure will be upsetting to a general audience. And if you are the kind of person who thinks that trigger warnings are bullshit, feel free to find the nearest dumpster and put yourself in it. With all of that said... It's time to go back to Hawaii. There was a burial crypt of a Polynesian village settled on these shores sometime before the 16th century. Our radio dating processing shows the bones on these skeletons to be at least 400 years old. That is, except two. We call them John and Mary. Babes in the woods compared to the others. They've only been dead nine or ten years. A curious fact... Each one shows osteal damage. Bone splintering caused by a foreign small object. Bullet? That's your department, Steve. We call it death by induced traumatic insult. We call it murder. Season 4, Episode 1, Highest Castle, Deepest Grave. Air date, September 14th, 1971. Directed by Charles S. Dubin. This is his third of 24 episodes. Story by Eric Mall. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O. And teleplay by Jerome Coopersmith. This is his fifth of 32 episodes. Archaeologists digging on a beach find a little statue in a cave. A little digging in the cave leads them to another chamber containing skeletons. A major find, except that dating reveals that two of the skeletons aren't 400 years old, but rather only 10. 5-0 is on the case. Both skeletons show that the victims were shot, but little else about their identities is known. A search of missing persons from that time period leads them to a man named Parker and his employer, a big shot by the name of Mandrago. Parker was his top man in the company. While Steve waits to have an audience with Mandrago, he finds himself captivated by a portrait of a beautiful woman. He's startled when a woman appears at the top of the stairs and asks if he likes her picture. Steve is then called in to talk to Mondrago, and he asks about Parker. Steve thinks the male corpse is his, and Mondrago is shocked to hear this. He has no idea who the skeleton of the woman might be, but he does offer a reward for finding the killer. The woman who startled McGarrett comes in. It's Mondrago's daughter, Cerrone. 
The portrait is of her mother, whom she is a spitting image of, and who died ten years ago. Curious. Danny fills Steve in on Parker. It seems that he might have been seeing Mondrago's wife on the side. Chin Ho brings in the wife's death certificate, which says she died of an aneurysm. Steve questions the doctor who issued the death certificate, who is reluctant to show Fivo her file. After a phone call, Dr. Ventner excuses himself to go into the other room, ostensibly to get Mrs. Mondrago's file. Instead, he grabs a file from the cabinet and takes off. Chin Ho calls it in before he and Steve give chase. A squad car spots the doctor and tries to pull him over. The doctor crashes through a roadblock. His brakes fail, and the chase ends in a fiery crash which destroys the doctor and the file he had. Jay confirms that the file was destroyed in the crash, and it seems that Dr. Vintner's brakes were either tampered with or badly neglected. At least Che can confirm that the male skeleton is indeed Parker. There's still no clue who the woman is, though. Steve again talks to Mondrago, who denies calling the doctor or in any way contributing to his death. In fact, he's insulted about all of this. His wife was buried on the property and 200 people attended the funeral. Steve points out that it doesn't matter how many people were there if it wasn't his wife in the coffin. Steve leaves, but Cerrone stops him. Their conversation about astrology reveals that as far as the stars are concerned, her father is a good man, her mother is pure angel, and she is a complicated woman. She asks that Steve leave her mother to rest in peace. As Mandrago watches Steve drive away, he gives his servants some instructions. Steve goes to talk to the artist who painted Mrs. Mondrago's portrait, a man named Duncan who's busy packing up some of his paintings when Steve arrives, and when Duncan sees him, he ducks out to the backyard before hollering for him to enter at his own risk. Out back, Steve impresses him with his art knowledge. When he brings up the portrait, Duncan asks if he fell in love with her too. Every man does. Steve asks if Parker could have seduced Mrs. Mondrago away from her husband, and Duncan becomes belligerent at the notion of an opportunist like Parker getting his hands on such a remarkable woman. Duncan says she was different, and he won't tolerate any defamation against her. After Steve leaves, Duncan's tirade confirming his suspicions, Mondrago's servant shows up, and it doesn't look like a social visit. Steve calls Danny from the car as he drives down the block. He tells him to get an exhumation order for Mrs. Mondrago's grave. Duncan witnessed the affair she had with Parker, and that's enough to suspect her husband murder. Just then, Duncan's house explodes. At the exhumation hearing, Mr. Mondrago's lawyer points out that the witness is apparently dead and there's no other real evidence to go on. However, the judge says there's still many questions that only an exhumation can answer and sides with Steve. That night, the coffin is dug up. But is the skeleton inside the real Mrs. Mondrago? I have no idea what set off the neighbor's chickens, but man, they are feisty. So according to Karen Rhodes' book, Booking Hawaii 5 she says that the plot of this episode owes a lot to the movie Laura, which a detective also falls in love with a woman in a portrait. I've not seen Laura. I don't know. So I'm just going to go with that. Personally, I think the premise kind of was odd for me. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I myself did not fall in love with the woman in the portrait because it was obvious that Steve did as soon as he saw it. And then you hear Danny seeing pictures of this woman and he kind of sounds a bit smitten with her. And 
Duncan going on about how she was a remarkable woman and Cerrone saying that every man falls in love with her portrait. I suddenly feel very left out because I didn't. But I guess that is the basis of the episode and part of the motivation Steve has for solving this case. Not that he would not be motivated to solve this case. We know who Steve is. He actually comes in on his day off to meet with the archaeologist who found and tested these bones so he can begin this murder investigation. So we got some off-duty Steve wear and it was glorious. But that seems to be his motivation to looking into Mrs. Mondrago's death. Because we get a quick voiceover, which I kind of like that transfer of the car driving to Mr. Mondrago's house. We have the voiceover of them playing catch up with search missing persons. Here's a missing person. He worked for Mr. Mondrago. Let's go talk to Mr. Mondrago about this employee. But they didn't find anything matching the woman's description. He goes to talk to Mr. Mondrago and he sees this portrait while he's waiting for his audience because the servant makes him wait in the front room there. And he's staring at this portrait when Cerrone comes down the stairs and asks if he likes her picture. And for a moment, because Cerrone is the spitting image of her mother, he is taken aback thinking it might be the woman in the portrait, but it's obvious that this portrait was done in, I think they said 1951. This is 1971. So the girl on the stairs is either aging beautifully or it's not really her or it's a ghost. I don't know because Steve is caught off guard and Cerrone seems to have fun sort of teasing him about that because when she comes in later she's like oh I think I surprised him when I caught him looking at the picture and saying that it was my portrait and she clarifies and says she's not wrong it is her portrait her mother left it to her when she died and she died 10 years ago so the information that Steve gets from Andrego about Parker going missing, saying that the women loved him, that he could have been with any woman, so he has no details on who this woman might be, and had no clue where he was when he went missing and actually offered a reward for him to be found, and he then says he will offer that same reward for the killer to be caught. There's no inclination that Mrs. Mondrago has anything to do with anything except for Steve's sudden interest in this picture and in this woman. So I think that's kind of what sets it up to be a little bit odd for me is because Steve is usually so logical. And while he can get emotional, it's usually further, I think, into an investigation. And it's also his emotions. He might get emotional, but it doesn't necessarily always like guide his or influence his investigation. He can get angry, but he tends to channel that to be more dogged about the investigation. And he still takes that logical path. Whereas this is that he starts poking into this woman's death just because he is intrigued by this portrait and he wants to know how she died. Obviously, Five-O goes looking into Parker, trying to figure out if he had any enemies, what would have caused him to disappear, what could have caused someone to make him disappear. And Danny comes across an interesting fact. He goes through newspaper archives in the picture archives, and every picture of Parker, he is with Mrs. Mondrago. There is only one picture of Mr. Mondrago with his wife, and Parker is also in that picture, and Mrs. Mondrago is looking at Parker, not her husband. They feel that significant. And you can hear in Danny's voice when he's talking about this woman, he's also been captured a bit by her image, and perhaps... There's a slight hint of jealousy from Steve when he's also talking about her in that conversation. 
What are you thinking, Triangle? A man stands to lose a woman like that. He uh, might just go off the deep end. Yeah. Yeah. If that's the way it happened. What do you mean, a woman like that? She was uh, really something. What a face. Yeah, I've seen her. That, that is, I saw the daughter. Looks just like the mother. Or maybe that's just me misreading things. Anyway, Chin Ho gets Mrs. Mondrago's cause of death, which was an aneurysm. Chin and Steve go to talk to the doctor who issued this death certificate about it. And the doctor's very cagey about it, saying it was 10 years ago. He doesn't know if he can find the file. It'll take a while. He doesn't see what this has to do with anything. And really, it kind of doesn't. It's just Steve being kind of obsessed with this woman and looking into it under the guise of an investigation. Dr. Vintner gets a phone call. You don't hear much on his side. Very noncommittal answers. He leaves, goes in the other room, excuses himself. You think he's going to get that file. Well, he locks the door and then you know, when he goes into the other room and you're like, yeah, he's not. He gets into the file cabinet, gets the file out and takes off running. Chin Ho and Steve probably wouldn't have known he left, but he peeled out of the parking lot and they heard it. So when you're making your getaways, try to be a little quieter about it. Chin Ho calls it in. Steve goes into the room. He kicks the door open. This nurse is real bitchy with him about it, telling him he can't go in. But Steve does. And then he starts grilling her. What kind of car does the doctor drive? Do you know the license plate? They call all of that in for squad cars to be on the lookout for him. And then Steve and Chin Ho give chase. They end up setting up a roadblock because a squad car spots Dr. Ventner's car. As Dr. Ventner is approaching the roadblock, he tries to put the brakes on. The brakes fail. He ends up crashing through the roadblock and his car goes off the road and explodes because this is the 1970s. All cars blew up. 70s and 80s were an incredibly dangerous time to be driving. Your car blew up at the slightest impact. They get his remains and get the remains of what was in the car and confirm that whatever file he has, and we are assuming that it is obviously Mrs. Mondrago's file, has been destroyed. The doctor's been destroyed. But Che Fong does confirm that one, if the brakes weren't tampered with, then they were, the car was badly neglected. But the brakes failed either way. And two, that the body that they found in the cave, the male body, is definitely Parker, but... They still don't know who the lady is. Obviously, Steve goes back to talk with Mondrago. Mondrago is offended that he would accuse him of having anything to do with the doctor's death. And Steve is now convinced, after the doctor's behavior, that Mondrago is hiding something about his wife's demise. And given that it was likely that she was having an affair with Parker, he's starting to suspect that that's who the woman in the cave is. And there's definitely some shenanigans going on. When Steve leaves, Sharoni stops him, and we get an interesting horoscope-filled conversation, but we also get this list of all of Mondrago's good deeds. You're a Capricorn, aren't you? Yeah, and I've locked up seven fortune tellers in my keys. <laughs> Capricorn, the uphill fighter overcomes all obstacles. You know you've met your match? Mm. My dad is a Leo. He's a king. Powerful, vain, egotistical, but a good king. Do you know what he has done for this island? Oh, the little bit. Factories, sugar mills. 
and the daycare center and the concert hall and uh, the medical clinic. And when the tidal wave hit Molokai, he flew hundreds of injured people at his own expense here. Saved I don't know how many lives. I'm a Scorpio, November 4th. We are very complicated people. Sort of angels and devils rolled up into one. I think we're all a little of both, aren't we? Not my mother, Mr. McGarrett. She was pure angel. Let her rest in peace, please. This turns out to be significant later, so just hang in there. Also, just so you know, Jack Lord actually is or was a Capricorn. He was born December 30th, which is a great day for birthdays because it's also shared with my beloved Jeanette Nolan, my beloved Michael Nesmith, and my beloved Davy Jones. Truly a great day to have a birthday. Once Mondrago sees Steve completely leave, as in he's driving away, he gives some instructions to his servant. We don't know what he says because he gives these instructions in Hawaiian. I have been studying Hawaiian for a little while. I was able to understand part of the sentence, and the only part I could understand was, I want you to. So obviously he was giving him his next instructions on what needed to be done. So Steve ends up going to the artist who painted the portrait, Duncan. And again, you can see here, there is no logical reason for him to go see this man about this painting. It has absolutely nothing to do with the case. It's his obsession with this portrait and this woman. He goes and he talks to Duncan, who is in the process of packing up his paintings. And when he hears Steve pull up and see who it is, he runs out the back door and then hollers, enter at your own risk. And when he talks to Steve, it's obvious that this dude operates on kind of another plane. He's a bit of an oddball. And Steve kind of soothes him by commenting on the painting that he's currently working on, which is a seascape. But then he asks about the portrait and Duncan immediately reads him for filth and says, oh, you fell in love with her too. And it's in the course of this conversation that Duncan says without saying directly that Mrs. Mondrago and Parker were having an affair. He had no friends he was an opportunist. He'd do anything for wealth and power, including seducing the boss's wife. Listen, you. You know, she wasn't one of your uh, country club broads with a cocktail in one hand and a motel key in another. She was... She was something different. Something he'd never known before and didn't deserve, but got... Ten years, man. Ten years. The passions are cold. The wounds are healed. Must you draw the blood of the survivors? For heaven's sake, man. Leave things alone. Steve tells him, hey, that's great. I'm going to be summoning you for a hearing to get her grave exhumed. So Duncan knows this when Steve leaves and Steve drives down the street and he calls in this order for the exhumation. Meanwhile, we see as soon as Steve leaves, that servant comes in 
and he's carrying a look like a black doctor's bag. He does not look like this is a social call. This is totally business. And since we don't know what the instructions were, and since we've already seen Dr. Ventner die, it does not look good for Duncan. And it looks really bad for him when his house blows up, which is a shame because it was a really nifty little shack on the beach. So it looks like Duncan has met his demise, and the attorneys bring this up at the exhumation hearing, which is in a judge's office. Mr. Mondrago's lawyer points out the accusations are baseless, they have no witnesses, they have no hard evidence, but the judge is persuaded enough that there were a lot of questions, and he basically decides that this could all be cleared up with an exhumation. All of these questions can go away. And it's funny because during their first meeting, Mondrago says to Steve, I like a man who stands up to me. And I immediately thought, you will regret that. When they have their second encounter and Steve is accusing without accusing him, but again, standing up to Mondrago in a different context, Mondrago isn't liking it as well. And I'm like, I told you, you would regret that. And so when we have this third encounter in which he loses his bid to not have his wife's grave exhumed, I'm like, and again, you are continuing to regret this. The grave is exhumed. And you're kind of wondering what shenanigans that Mondrago might have done to try to stop them from doing it. Because he kind of insinuates, yeah, you won this, but... Uh, but nothing happens. They just exhume the grave. And inside is a skeleton. I have questions. I want to know what the burial procedure here is. Because in a coffin, even without embalming, you would not have a skeleton left. The decomposition would not have, even after 10 years underground, you wouldn't have the decomposition at the level that all you would have left is skeleton. First of all, there would have been clothes. I'm guessing they took the clothes off. It's possible that what they ended up doing was basically denuding the bones, but there would not have been a complete skeleton left looking so pristine like that. There would have been yick. I'm just saying, this is just commentary from a person who reads a whole lot about death and decay and decomposition. I have curious hobbies. Anyway, upon examination of these bones, they find that the skeleton in the coffin had a broken arm at one point. The other skeleton has no evidence of any fractures whatsoever, aside from what was incurred from the gunshot wound. And without Mrs. Mondrago's medical records, it's difficult to confirm whether or not that skeleton is actually her. And we have this moment where Steve is staring at these, the picture of these two skeletons, visualizing the crime of passion that led to this. And he's interrupted by Danny, and it's a little bit awkward. But that's just the level of obsession that Steve has garnered over the course of this episode. So then we see that Mondrago is having a late night meeting with Duncan. He's actually alive, so his death has been faked. Mondrago gives him a lot of money, and he bails. Cerrone questions her father about this, and he tells her not to worry about it. And she starts questioning him about Duncan. Why are you giving Duncan money? What really happened to my mother? what happened to Mr. Parker, all of this stuff. And she kind of breaks down. And the way Mondrago denies giving her any information, it makes him look very guilty. It is then figured out, because they don't have Mrs. Mondrago's medical files, they start looking through all of Dr. Vintner's medical records because his medical clinic was funded by Mondrago. He would have been able to obtain a corpse fitting Mondrago's wife's description. So they start going through all of these medical records. 
And what they find is that this is actually, the corpse is actually a woman from Molokai. If you are paying attention to the list of good deeds that Mondrego has done, you will have noticed that one of those deeds was he brought over survivors from the Molokai tidal wave and got them medical help. So some of them died, some of them were fine and returned to Molokai. But the numbers didn't add up and there was one person missing and they found that person and she would have been reasonably close to the description of Mondrago's wife and she had a broken arm. So that is who is actually in the casket. Chin then drops the bomb that the doctor did not take Mrs. Mondrago's file when he fled. That's not the file that burned up in his car because he saw Mrs. Mondrago's medical file while they were going through all of the other ones. So now the question is, what file did Dr. Vintner take? Knowing that Mondrago has replaced his wife's body with the body of another woman, they bring him in and he confesses. And it sounds pretty reasonable. He is a wronged husband whose wife is cheating on him with his top executive. It seems totally reasonable that he would have caught the two of them together and he shot both of them. However, there is one hitch in that giddy up and Steve notices it. He said that he saw them in the bedroom together in an embrace. He went to the study, got his gun and came back. He says that they saw him, that they saw each other. And Steve points out, if your boss just caught you with his wife, why would you hang around for him to go get his gun? You would have laughed. So there's clearly more to this story, and Steve wants to find out what it is. And it all comes together when 5-0 finds out that Duncan is alive, and Steve goes back to look at the portrait one last time. Let's take a look at a portrait of our guest cast. Mondrago was played by Herbert Loam. He's probably best known as Chief Inspector Charles Dreyfus in the Inspector Clouseau movies. He was Dr. Roger Corder on The Human Jungle, which was a British show about a psychiatrist. He turned up in episodes of The Man from Uncle, The Detectives, and Marple. He also appeared in the movies Going Bananas, King Solomon's Mines, The Dead Zone, The Lady Vanishes, Murders in the Rue Morgue, the 1970 version, Count Dracula, Mark of the Devil, Bang Bang You're Dead, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Spartacus, I Accuse, War and Peace, The Lady Killers, Star of India, Hell is Sold Out, The Black Rose, Night in the City, Brass Monkey, Snowbound, and Ten Little Indians, both the 1974 and the 1989 versions, but he didn't play the same character. And he was in the TV movies, Peter and Paul, and Scoop, and in the miniseries, Lace. Duncan was played by Jeff Corey. This is his second of two episodes. He was also in the episode King of the Hill. Cerrone was played by France Nguyen. This is her first of three episodes. She was Dr. Paulette Keim on St. Elsewhere and Dr. Carol on Knott's Landing. She also turned up in episodes of Burke's Law, The Man from Uncle, Gunsmoke, I Spy, Star Trek, The Magician, Chopper One, Medical Center, Charlie's Angels, Columbo, Fantasy Island, Trapper John M.D., Auto Man, Magnum P.I., Murder, She Wrote, and the 1995 Outer Limits. She appeared in the movies A Passion to Kill, The Joy Luck Club, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, The Big Game, A Girl Named Tamiko, Diamond Head, Satan Never Sleeps, and South Pacific. She was in the TV movies The Horror at 37,000 Feet, Codename Diamond Head, Death Moon, and Midas Valley, 
and she was in the miniseries Opposite Her. Dr. Ventner was Bill Edwards. This is his first of 17 episodes. He will later appear as Jonathan Kay. He also appeared in episodes of Death Valley Days, Sea Hunt, Bonanza, Big Hawaii, and Magna P.I. He appeared in the movies Inferno in Paradise, The First Legion, Trail of the Yukon, Danger Street, The Virginian, Hail the Conquering Hero, and he has several uncredited roles, including in Tora Tora Tora, because everyone was in it. He also appeared in the TV movies Gidget's Summer Reunion and Blood and Orchids, and he appeared in the miniseries Pearl. The archaeology professor was played by Herb Jeffries. This is his second of four episodes. We also saw him in Face of the Dragon. Akea, the servant, was played by Mo Kiali. This is his first of 29 episodes, and he will later be Detective Truck Kialoha in the final season. He also turned up in episodes of The Brian Keith Show, Big Hawaii, The Mackenzies of Paradise Cove, Charlie's Angels, Magnum P.I., The Birds of Paradise, and Marker. He appeared in the movie Picture Bride. He appeared in the TV movies Danger in Paradise, Sticking Together, The Islander, The Paradise Connection, M Station Hawaii, Hawaiian Heat, Gidget Summer Reunion, Blood and Orchids, and the 1997 Hawaii Five-O TV movie As Truck. And he appeared in the miniseries Pearl. Mondrago's lawyer, Sean, was played by Bill Quinn. He has 230 credits listed on IMDb. He was Mr. Van Rensselaer on Archie Bunker's Place and All in the Family. He was Police Chief Paulson on McMillan and Wife. Senator McKierney on Rich Man, Poor Man Book 2. He was a judge on both Arrest and Trial and Owen Marshall, Counselor at Large. He was Dr. Melnitz on The Odd Couple. And he was Frank Sweeney on The Rifleman. He also turned up in episodes of Peter Gunn, Wanted Dead or Alive, Perry Mason, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Hawaiian Eye, 77 Sunset Strip, My Favorite Martian, Beverly Hillbillies, The Monsters, Mr. Ad, McHale's Navy, Honey West, Batman, My Three Sons, The Fugitive, The Virginian, The Man from Uncle, Bonanza, The Wild Wild West, Big Valley, Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, That Girl, Ironside, Mayberry RFD, Mannix, Night Gallery, Mod Squad, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Adam 12, The Waltons, Little House on the Prairie, Cannon, Ellery Queen, The Rookies, Emergency, The Bob Newhart Show, The Rockford Files, The New Odd Couple, Trapper John MD, The Golden Girls, New heart and highway to heaven he appeared in the movies lucky stiff the twilight zone movie bust and loose psychic killer dark intruder the birds and cry for happy he appeared in the tv movies dead man tell no tales savage satan's school for girls fools females and fun death scream delta county usa crisis in sun valley and rage and he appeared in the miniseries Captains and Kings, Rich Man, Poor Man, The Backstairs at the White House, and Roots the Next Generation. The DA was played by Don Doolittle. He also appeared in the movies Hawaii, Creation of the Humanoids, and he has an uncredited role in Wake Me When It's Over. The judge was played by Herman Wedemeyer. He has one other non-Duke role before becoming Duke. And of course, Doc Bergman was played by Al Eben, and this is his first episode as Dr. Bergman. Our story was by Eric Moll. This is his only episode of Hawaii 5 but he has writing credits for four episodes of Playhouse 90, two episodes of I Spy, an episode of Run for Your Life, an episode of Bold Ones, The New Lawyers, and an episode of King's Row. He also has writing credits for the movies 
Night Without Sleep, The House on Telegraph Hill, You Were Meant for Me, and Wake Up and Dream. And that is Highest Castle, Deepest Grave. For me, it's an okay episode. I just don't get into it as much, I think, as other people do. And the final twist at the end paid off, but it didn't. And I can't really go into that without giving up spoilers, and you know I don't like to do that on these episodes. So it's not for lack of creativity. It's not for lack of acting, definitely. The guest cast is just fabulous. And once again, Jack Lord is underrated because he plays the obsession that he has with Mrs. Mondrago's portrait with a compelling sort of subtlety especially with the little bit of jealousy flair that he has with Dano when Danny's talking about how captivating the woman is. So yeah, I liked it well enough. It's just an okay episode for me, but who knows? You might fall in love with Mrs. Mondrago's portrait. Give it a watch. If you're selling home improvements, you're wasting your time. I thrive in squatter. Another one? Looks like that'll make five. Who's it this time? Phil Hurley, small-time pimp and all-around good fellow. Who called it in? I just happened to look out the window. The whole thing didn't take but a minute. That's my window over there, the second floor. Any other witnesses? Maybe, but nobody's jumping up to volunteer. And you sure it was Phil Hurley? Yeah. That seems to be the only thing you're sure of. Look, it was crowded, you know. Phil was hanging around, then he left. Out the back door? Yeah, he knew his way around here. Or maybe he saw someone he didn't want to see. I wouldn't know. I bet you wouldn't know. Episode 2. No Bottles, No Cans, No People. Air date September 21st, 1971, directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his 11th of 36 episodes. And written by Gerald Ludwig. This is his 11th of 12 episodes. And Eric Bursavisi, this is also his 11th of 12 episodes. Ray goes into a bar and mean mugs a guy who runs into an alley where Ray and another thug take him out and throw him in the trunk of a car. They drive him to another alley and put his corpse in a dumpster. Meanwhile, Johnny Oporta escorts his syndicate boss to the airport in a limo, assuring him that the deadline will be met and Johnny will prove himself to the folks in Detroit. 5-0 investigates the man's disappearance as Bill Early is a known crime associate and there's been a rash of them going missing. A neighbor of the bar called it in, but inside, the witnesses aren't as forthcoming. The bartender admits that Bill was in and left by the back door, but he doesn't know anything else. Considering that this has happened to four other guys, Steve suspects a setup, but the bartender admits nothing. Steve gets a call from the governor and he goes to the airport where he and the governor meet with the assistant U.S. attorney general. He's concerned about the spread of organized crime and fears that Hawaii is the next big target and prostitution is the gateway. This information slots things into place with Steve regarding the recent disappearances and he immediately IDs Johnny Oporta as a prime suspect, a small-time hustler trying to get to the top in the sex work game. It's all of his competitors that have gone missing. Of course, Steve is right as Johnny confronts a guy by the name of Peter Yano, saying he just wants to talk. Yano later goes home to his girl Sally and tells her that he told Johnny where to go. None of his fancy deals for him. Steve goes to talk to Johnny and basically tells him he's going to squeeze him until there's nothing left. 
Johnny puts up a good front, but he's rattled. Once Steve leaves, he tells Ray and Ray's bestie that it would be in their best interest to make a statement. No more holdouts. They're going to make an example of Peter Yano. This time, they're going to let a body be found. He calls a man named Furtado, who works at the trash incinerators. He's been the one burning the bodies tossed in the dumpsters. Johnny informs him that this time Furtado is going to have to be a witness. For an increase in fees, he agrees. It turns out that Sally is Peter's girl in more ways than one. After she gives him some cash from her latest John and moves on, Ray and his buddy corner Peter and kill him. They steal his cash, tossing the money clip in a nearby garbage can before dumping Peter's body in a dumpster. As per plan, Furtado sees the body this time and calls it in. He tells 5-0 that he saw the body as it fell into the incinerator and gave the signal to turn it off, so the body is only partially charred. His buddy Charlie, however, didn't see anything. Furtado helpfully explains the trash burning process, and a guy named Spooner explains what happens to what's burned. The ashes are spread out, while any bits of metal that aren't destroyed are kept and sold for coffee money. Steve asks for a list of drivers and routes. They know how Johnny is getting rid of the bodies now. They just need to find out who the latest one is. The doc positively identifies the charred remains as Peter Yano. Steve goes to talk to Sally to get some information. She tells Steve what she knows, but it's all hearsay. This infuriates Sally because she knows how Johnny is. He'll work all the angles and end up getting away with it. Johnny is feeling pretty good about everything and tells the syndicate so when they call. They say they'll be coming back out. Going through Yano's personal things, they realize that his money clip is missing. It wouldn't have melted. It's platinum. Five-O also goes looking into Furtado. After all, he's the man on the switch. Sally talks to her friend Vicky about Johnny killing Yano, and Vicky warns her not to get into the middle of it. They go their separate ways, and Vicky immediately calls Johnny to fill him in, earning herself 50 bucks. Ray and Associate want Sally dead, but Johnny vetoes that idea. They've already won. Sally's death would be unnecessary. Meanwhile, Sally writes McGarrett a letter before getting a gun from her dresser. She confronts Johnny in a parking garage. When Johnny's attempts to talk himself out of this pickle fail, he and Sally struggle for the gun, and Sally ends up dead. If you think I, a child of the 80s, did not immediately riff on men at work and say, oh, look, they threw away a perfectly good criminal when they checked Bill early into the dumpster, he would be wrong. I actually find the plot of this episode rather intriguing and quite fun because we have this concern of organized crime moving into Hawaii and we already know that there's local organized crime issues so they don't need anybody from Detroit, particularly someone who looks like he's dressed like a banker, coming in and causing more problems. And I had no idea that prostitution was the gateway drug of organized crime. But hey, you know what? We're always learning things on Become Dano. We have a whole educational experience with this episode, learning how the trash incinerators work and how the ashes are spread. Because when you think about it, Hawaii has a very finite amount of land in which to dispose their refuse. So having a landfill actually isn't really practical for an island country. So we get to learn a whole lot of things about how Hawaii disposes of their garbage. And we also learn that prostitution is the way that organized crime can get their foot in the door, which just leads to things like racketeering and other organized crime things that I'm currently failing to think of. Anyway, 
I like the idea that organized crime is moving its way in and that Johnny Oporta is so desperate to be somebody that he seizes this opportunity to get rid of the other pimps on Oahu and provide the syndicate with their foot in the door. His scheme in this is having his thugs kill these rival businessmen, as it were, dispose of them in dumpsters, and then have their bodies incinerated by paying off Furtado, who's running the incinerator. I think that's actually a rather brilliant business plan on his part. So, of course, Steve has to come in and screw it all up for him. Oh, is this a social visit? No, no, Johnny, it's business. Strictly business. Your business. It's not going to work, Johnny. Oh, come on, McGarrett. I heard you've been walking up and down the streets trying to pin all kinds of things on me. Finish, Johnny. All pow. Because from now on, I'm squeezing you so hard that it's all going to crack open. And when it does, you won't have anything or anybody to peddle. Now, you can tell that to your friends on the mainland. Stop by any time, McGarrett. And the beautiful part about this is Johnny Oporta is played by Henry Darrow, and he does a magnificent job of playing an insecure criminal with very big ambitions. Because when Oporta is with his crew, when he's with his little thuglings, when he's working with Furtado, he is completely under control. When he's talking to the syndicate boss, he seems very confident very assured of himself. He conducts himself as a man of power when he's dealing with Peter Yano in the one scene that they have him in. Peter Yano, you can tell, fears him. He seems like he's good for the job. However, when he encounters Steve, when Steve comes to his office, and it's a PR office, by the way, which I thought was absolutely hilarious considering he's basically a pimp. Steve lays down the law for him. It's very subtle acting, but you can see that Oporta is rattled by this. You can see that insecurity that maybe I'm not good enough to pull this off. But as soon as Steve leaves and Ray and his buddy come in, he builds himself right back up. Now he's back in control. And that's when he comes up with this idea that, yes, we are going to take out Peter Yano and he's going to disappear, but not completely. We're going to make a statement with his death. And then later when he has his undoing, because, you know, as soon as he says, we're not going to kill Sally, that Sally is going to end up dead. Poor Sally. But when he's in that parking garage with her, trying to talk his way out of this, and you see that insecurity, and you see him flailing, and he's just basically talking, trying to keep talking to either get her to put down the gun or to get him close enough so he can take the gun. And then after Sally is killed, you can see him once again reassert control over himself because he's putting himself back in that position of power with Ray and his associate and with Furtado. And he once again becomes that smooth, in-control person. So it's really kind of interesting. So much of the storyline is carried by Henry Darrow's acting and his portrayal of a man desperate to prove himself and desperate for power. But he's at his core, very insecure. So it makes for a compelling story on top of the fact that we have this kind of brilliant plan of how to get rid of your enemies. 
I would also like to point out that I don't know if it is a requirement for Johnny Porta's crew, but the shirt-tie combos are absolutely magnificent. Al Harrington, who plays Ray, runs around in a beautiful, bright pink shirt with a complimentary tie murdering people. It's glorious. So obviously there's the police work involved stems from investigating at the incinerator after the body is found. And they want to know the drivers and they want to know the roots of who's picking up these dumpsters because they know that's how Aporta is getting rid of the bodies. I would also like to know these drivers and these roots. I am guessing that these murders coincide with when these trash pickups are because otherwise it just seems incredibly convenient that Ray and his buddy are able to murder these people, dump them in a dumpster, and the dumpster is picked up within minutes of this crime being committed. Very, very convenient. So obviously the police work stems from that, learning how the trash incinerator works, learning what's burnt and what's not and what happens to the ashes, and looking into the potential victims of Johnny Oporta. And so they end up identifying that the body that was found was Peter Yano. Five-O gets the first of a couple of breaks in this case. Uh, first of all, identifying a victim. Second of all, going through his personal items, they realize he's missing a money clip. Because Ray, after killing him, because he knows he just scored some cash from Sally, from a John, takes the money and tosses the clip in the garbage, not in the dumpster. If it had been in the dumpster, it wouldn't have burned and they would have found it. But instead, he puts it in the garbage. So that missing is a significant clue. And at some point, they do find that money clip because he seems to be playing a wino caricature, finds it in the trash and attempts to pawn it. Well, they've put out a description of it to pawn shops and places like that to be on the lookout. And the wino is actually very helpful when 5-0 shows up. He shows exactly where they found it and they find evidence of Peter Yano's murder there. They find the bullet holes. So that's just another lead that they get. They also get a major break in the case via Sally. Steve goes to talk to Sally, and Sally, of course, is despondent about the murder of Peter and vents her frustrations to Steve. You're telling me Peter's dead, and we both know Johnny O'Port is the reason why. Not good enough for a jury. Have you ever seen Johnny or heard Johnny or his hoods threaten Peter? No! But he's told me about it. They came around yesterday to close him out. Isn't that good enough for you? Uh-uh. Hearsay evidence. No judge will admit it. Oh, angles. Legal angles. You're so good at that, aren't you? And Johnny's so good at playing that. And pretty soon you'll just explain it all away. I guess Peter shot himself and jumped into that furnace. I'll tell you something. If Johnny did it, He's not going to get away with it. You talk so big, McGarrett. So big. But what are you going to do is what I want to know. She then ends up talking to her friend, Vicky, who advises her to let it go and not put herself in the middle of it because it's always the girls that get hurt with these types of situations. As soon as Sally leaves, Vicky goes and calls Johnny Aporta and tells him everything that Sally just said. So she tells her supposed friend to stay safe and then goes and makes her unsafe. Nice. With friends like that, right? Johnny decides he's not going to do anything about her because they've already won as far as he's concerned. The message is out. Hawaii's sold up. The syndicate's coming back out. There is no need 
to get McGarrett any further up their nose by murdering Sally or even putting the squeeze on her. That just draws too much attention. This is actually kind of a smart move. There's not much Sally can do. She doesn't have a whole lot of evidence. So there's nothing that McGarrett can really do with her. So Johnny's not wrong. However, Sally is not satisfied with this. And so she writes McGarrett a letter. And basically the crux of this letter is, is that she's not going to let Johnny Porter get away with this. And she goes to that garage with the intention of killing him. The problem is, is the problem that most people have when they go intending to inflict vengeance on others is that they have to monologue first. And she has to sit there and gives him the opportunity to, A, try to talk himself out of it. But while he's talking to her about it, he's getting closer to her. When this all could have been settled if she would have said, hmm, this is for Johnny and just shot him to death. Not even giving him an opportunity to speak. But no, rarely does that ever happen. So they struggle over the gun. She ends up getting shot to death. And it's her death that ends up breaking the case. Well, her death and Johnny's inability to think more creatively about body disposal because he falls right back into the incinerator. Now, Furtado warned him that if they did this with him being the witness to this body, they wouldn't be able to put any more bodies in the incinerator because then it would be suspicious. He would be looked at. And he was being looked at. 5-0 investigated everybody who worked at the plant, including Furtado. And they didn't find anything suspicious. Nobody was getting any large amounts of money or there was nobody with any major criminal histories. Nothing with any connections to a porter or any syndicate crime, anything like that. So even though Furtado was kind of being eyed just because he was the man on the switch, if they had never tried to dispose of another body that way, nothing would have happened. However, Johnny can't get rid of this because it's worked before. He can't come up with another idea for Sally's disposal. So he pressures Furtado, giving him even more money to do this. And Furtado finally, and kind of threatens him a little bit, but it was mostly the money and Furtado finally agrees. So he puts Sally's body in the dumpster, of course, that Sally's body is taken to the incinerator. It is a wig. It is a wig and a dress. Because it's half buried in garbage, so all you see is this horrible wig with bugs crawling on it. And part of her dress, truly blessings to Michael O'Hurley for not making an actress crawl into all of that garbage and pretend to be dead. And Sally's body makes it into the incinerator. However, Steve gets the letter and realizes that Sally is gunning for Oporta, so he goes to talk to him about this. And Oporta right now is the smuggest we have ever seen him because he thinks he's gotten away with it. Steve doesn't know what happened to Sally. Can't say for sure she's dead. She's just not around. And there's no evidence saying that he murdered her. So Laporta is doing this little victory dance almost. It is the most confident and the most in charge we've ever seen him because he's not even wilting under the gaze of Steve McGarrett. He really thinks that he's won. However, Steve is Steve. He again goes back to the incinerator, looks for evidence that Sally's been put to the flames. And thanks to Sally, she breaks the case wide open. <laughs> This guest cast is a gateway to a good time, so let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Johnny Oporta is played by Henry Darrow. This is his first of three episodes. He's probably best known as Manolito Montoya on The High Chaparral. He was also Alex Montanez on The New Dick Van Dyke Show. 
Lieutenant Manuel Manny Quinlan on Harry O, Lieutenant Rojas on Me and Mom. He was the voice of Don Diego slash Zorro on The New Adventures of Zorro. He was Don Diego Vega slash Zorro Sr. on Zorro and Son. And he was Don Alejandro de Vega on the 1990 Zorro series. He also appeared in episodes of Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Wild Wild West, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Mission Impossible, Night Gallery, Mod Squad, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Kung Fu, Kojak, Macmillan and Wife's, The Streets of San Francisco, Beretta, The Six Million Dollar Man, Wonder Woman, The Bionic Woman, The Waltons, BJ and the Bear, The Incredible Hulk, Quincy and Me, Dallas Dynasty, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Tales of the Gold Monkey, Magnum P.I., T.J. Hooker, Simon and Simon, Star Trek The Next Generation, The Gold and girls, nurses, Star Trek Voyager, Diagnosis Murder, The Bold and the Beautiful, and One Tree Hill. He appeared in the movies Runaway Jury, Enemy Action, Maverick, L.A. Bounty, The Hitcher, Birds of Paradise, Losing It, Walk Proud, Badge 373, and The Glass Cage. And he was in the TV movies Hernandez, Hitchhike, Night Games, Aloha Means Goodbye, Halloween with the New Adams Family, Rooster, Empire, and A Girl Like Me, The Gwen Arujo Story. Furtado was played by Ron Feinberg. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in Pray, Love, Remember, Pray, Love, Remember. The Syndicate Negotiator was played by Jack Coslin. This is his first of three episodes. He also turned up in episodes of Surfside 6, Ben Casey, Rawhide, The Brian Keith Show, Harry O, Emergency, Beretta, Voyagers, Charlie's Angels, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Cagney and Lacey, and Cheers. He appeared in the movies Vendetta, Empire of the Ants, Magnum Force, High Plains Drifter, Play Misty for Me, The Spider, War of the Colossal Beast, Attack of the Puppet People, and The Amazing Colossal Man. He was in the TV movie The Death of Richie, and he was in the miniseries Blind Ambition. Sally was played by Beth Brickle. This is her first of two episodes. She was Ellen Wedlow on Gentle Ben. She also appeared in episodes of The Man and the Girl from Uncle, The Green Hornet, Marcus Welby, M.D., The Virginian, Dan August, Bonanza, Alias Smith & Jones, Gunsmoke, Love American Style, Emergency, The Magician, Adam 12, Ironside, Matt Helm, and Fantasy Island. She appeared in the movies Death Game, Posse, and The Only Way Home. And she was in the TV movies The Great Man's Whiskers and Brock's Last Case. As I said, Ray was played by Al Harrington. He only has one more appearance before he begins his stint as Ben. Benson was played by Tom Palmer. He appeared in episodes of Gunsmoke, The Donna Reed Show, Lawman, Half Gun Will Travel, The Twilight Zone, Peter Gunn, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Dennis the Menace, Outer Limits, My Three Sons, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Dr. Kildare, The Wild Wild West, Bonanza, Hazel, Perry Mason, Bewitched, The Man from Uncle, The Andy Griffith Show, Invaders, I Dream of Judy, Mannix, Maybury RFD, The FBI, The Rookies, Search, and Jake and the Fat Man. He appeared in the movies Gun Deer Heart and Day of Wine and Roses. And he was in the TV movies, Ladies of the Corridor, and Jeremiah of Jacob's Neck. Peter Yano was played by Daniel Calacchini Jr. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in Strangers in Our Own Land. Ozzy was played by Charles Bent. We'll see him in one more episode. Vicky was played by Cass Shea. This is her only credit. Spooner was played by Lippy Espinda. This is his third of 11 episodes. We also saw him in The Guanarius Caper and Dear Enemy. The Bartender was played by Terry Plunkett. This is his third of 16 episodes. We saw him in The Last Eden and The Double Wall. (laughs) 
And that is No Bottles, No Cans, No People. I really do enjoy this episode because I do think it's clever on several levels in that we have this man so driven to succeed in the criminal enterprises and yet he is a complex human. He's not just a straightforward, powerful guy that McGarrett usually goes up against like Mandrago in the first episode. He's very complex in the fact that he's really an insecure guy and you only see that confidence come out first when he's just dealing with his underlings and second when he's absolutely sure that he's won and that he has done everything that the syndicate wants him to and that they will be very pleased with his work and that there's no way McGarry can get him. So it's very interesting to watch him go through this episode. And then there's also that fact of this is how the syndicate is from Detroit is trying to move in. And this is how Aporta is effectively getting rid of the competition. But when it counts, his undoing is a death that would have been considered self-defense if he was anybody else. And that he reverts to that same solution. It turns out to be his undoing. It makes for great viewing because you can literally see his impending doom and there is nothing that's going to be done to stop it. So even knowing that, you should give it a watch. Was he alive when he went in the fire? Not with a bullet hole in his chest. And that is episode 39 of Bookum Dano. And holy hell, was there a lot of cars and chickens in the background in this episode. I'm so sorry about that, but that is the perils of recording in July without air conditioning. I'm not going to sweat to death for this. I'm sorry, folks. I feel that season four had a pretty strong opening. As I said, Highest Castle, Deepest Grave is compelling, but I don't think it grabs me as much as it did other people. I enjoyed No Cans, No Bottles, No People much better. I think it was definitely more action-packed, even if it didn't have an exploding car. But both episodes are solid. They're quite good. And I think it's a good, solid opening for season four. And hopefully the quality of my episodes for season four will improve. Fingers crossed. I'm guaranteeing nothing. But thank you for joining me. As always, I appreciate your ears, and I hope you're as excited for season four as I am. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want my thoughts in real time without the background noise, you can follow me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So beware those bewitching portraits and mind what you throw away. Until next time, aloha.